So here we are this morning to celebrate Jesus, to worship him, not only through singing, not only through connecting with each other as his family, but also as we kind of gather around, as we gather around his word and ask him to help us understand what he has to say uh, to us this morning. So I'm going to pray and then we'll, we'll jump into the message for this morning. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for waking us up and bringing us here this morning. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Without him, we couldn't, we couldn't do anything. We couldn't bear fruit. We couldn't read and understand the Bible. We couldn't change to become more like Jesus. So thank you for him. And Lord, would you, would you come now and, and help us, Lord, to, to hear your words? We know that your words are true. We know that your words never change. We know that your words are able to make us wise, to give us joy, to help us be the people that you've created us to be. So would that be the case this morning that we would hear and understand? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we've been in this series in the back half of the Gospel of Mark called, Why Did Jesus Have to Die? Why did Jesus have to die? And if you got the email um, last night from us, the answer or the title of this week's message is, Jesus died to save you or so that you won't be a hypocrite. Jesus died so that you won't be a hypocrite, which is a, like, you know, it's a, it, you, you may wonder, well, what does that really mean? What does it mean to be a hypocrite? Because I, you know, am, is that me? Am I one? Or is it just the, you know, the people in the Bible? Is it the, 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 the fake people out there that, you know, that we all like to think that we're not one of them? So we're, we're going to look at that this morning. Um, we're going to give a little bit of a definition up front of what hypocrisy is. And then we'll see some examples in this section of Mark. So we're in Mark uh, chapter 12 starting in verse 13 to 44. Now, instead of reading it all in one piece up front, I'm going to actually read it in, in sections as we go, and the words will be up on the screen. You can follow along. But before I do that, I said I wanted to give you a definition of what hypocrisy is. I want you to, just as I, I'm about to do that, picture in your mind what you think or who you think a hypocrite might be. Don't look at the person next to you. Be awkward. But what, who is a hypocrite? What, is that, what does that look like to you? Um, hopefully it's not anyone in this room that you're picturing or, or the, the person standing in front of you giving the, the sermon. Um, but this section in Mark 12 gives us plenty of examples of hypocrisy to think about. But it also gives us the cure, the, the answer to hypocrisy. And if it's true that Jesus died to save you from being a hypocrite... Um, it's important to see how he calls us and leads us out of um, that to be men and women of integrity, whose lives reflect the integrity of God himself. So here's the definition. We don't always get this right. If you ask a lot of people to define what hypocrisy or what a hypocrite is, you'll tend to hear people talk about somebody who lives in a way that's not true to themselves, somebody who lives in a way that's not authentic. So I feel a certain way, but for whatever reason, because I'm in a religious environment or I'm in with, around certain people, certain people that I'm trying to impress, I live a different way in order to, for, for, for some other reason. So I'm not being true to myself. I'm not letting my true colors show. I'm living a lie, to use various expressions. A lot of us, we kind of mix hypocrisy in with that whole thing. That's not how hypocrisy is pictured or d defined in Scripture. You know, we, we hear ourselves as Christians even sometimes getting 
pulled into this, the world's culture's definition of hypocrisy. So you might have even said things like, you know, I can't forgive that person in my life that's hurt me until I feel ready, until I feel ready. Because if I did so, if I just said that I forgive them and I don't really feel it in my heart, that would, I would be a hypocrite. I don't know if you said that or heard people say that. I can't go to church this morning because I woke up and with this unresolved issue. And so, I, because that would be inauthentic, I would be a hypocrite to even go. Um, that's kind of accepting the world's understanding of what it means to be a, hypoc- uh, a hypocrite. But in scripture, and we're going to see this today, hypocrisy is not the gap between what I feel and what I actually do. Hypocrisy is the gap between what I believe, or what I say I believe, and what I do. It's a gap between belief and behavior. And it's something that can grow over time. Hypocrisy can grow over time. The more you try to hide behavior and attitudes that don't line up with who God is and who you claim to be, the more hypocrisy kind of gets baked into who you are. You, You tend to excuse it, And then eventually you don't see it anymore. So let's let Jesus today expose not just the hearts of the Pharisees and the religious leaders, but let's take a look at our own hearts as well and and let him show you and me the cure for hypocrisy and the freedom to live with true integrity and authenticity. So if you have your your Bible open, look at, we're going to start with verse 13. I'm going to read down to verse 17. Here we go. I'm reading from the CSB. Then they sent some of the Pharisees, and the they there is all the people that are opposed to Jesus, his enemies, if you like. They sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. And when they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know you are truthful, and you don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. So is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But knowing there, there's a word, hypocrisy, he said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought a coin. Whose image and inscription is on this? He asked them, Caesar's, they replied. Jesus told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. All right. So the first antidote to hypocrisy is found here in this encounter between Jesus and his opponents. There are several. I told you last week that chapters 11 to 15 of Mark are all things that happen in the very last week of Jesus' life. And in that last week, there are six episodes in Mark of Jesus kind of clashing or, um, with his opponents. And this is actually episode number four. We looked at the first three uh, in previous weeks. This is episode number four. And they had just come off this parable that Jesus told. I don't know at the beginning of chapter 12, we talked about it last week, where uh, he compares the religious leaders to these evil um, tenants in a vineyard that end up abusing all of the, and killing the agents, and then eventually the heir, the son, they kill him too. And it says that the king, the owner of the vineyard, is going to come and destroy them, kill them, punish them for their wickedness. And, he, and it says there that they went away. They took a break from attacking Jesus because they knew that they were the bad guys in the story. 
And so this is, they've kind of gone back and regrouped, and they're back again for another round. And this is what's, what's happening here. Now, and they're switching tactics. They're switching tactics, because before, what they were trying to do is, they were actually trying to get the crowd on side. They're trying to take the crowd, just the average ordinary people that were following Jesus, the ones that were shouting Hosanna when he came into the city, they're trying to turn them against Jesus. Here, they're not so much trying to turn the crowds against Jesus. Here, they're trying to get Jesus in trouble with the police. They're trying to get him in trouble with law enforcement, with the Romans. That's why they bring up this whole thing about paying taxes. The crowds didn't like taxes any more than we like taxes, but the Romans were very interested that the people pay taxes. And so they're trying to get, kind of lure Jesus into saying, no, you don't have to pay taxes. Um, and then he would be arrested and possibly executed as a traitor. We know from history that there's all sorts of examples of people who want, uh, of Jewish people who were alive in that day who hated the Romans and wanted to kick them out. And in fact, there was even some who led rebellions. There's a famous rebellion that happened about 30 years before this, uh, led by a guy called Judas the Galilean. And what Judas, the, and he's not the same Judas that betrayed Jesus, a different Judas, he, what he was rebelling for, what he led this thing for, was that the Romans, the Roman government, raised taxes. Raised taxes. And so he said, no, that's not okay. This guy, Judas, he led a rebellion. And it didn't end well. Lots of people died, including Judas himself. He lost him. He lost his life. The rebellion failed. Now, some of the Jews looked back at this guy and looked, saw him as a hero. They thought, this guy, he didn't succeed but he was a hero. They were maybe what you might call the right-wing sort of political faction or parties of that day. And you had groups like the Pharisees and another extreme right-wing group called the Zealots. They were the guys that would look at Judas and kind of say he's a hero. They might not say it out loud, but that's what they wanted the Romans gone. And if, there was a, if they saw Jesus as the one that was going to do it, they would have gotten behind him in a, in a heartbeat. But then you also had among the Jews what you might call the moderate or, or left-wing parties. And they would be like, this, you see the Herodians here, and you see the Sadducees. And they're the ones that kind of thought, well, you know, life under the Romans isn't perfect, but it's, it's all right. We still have freedom to, to worship at the temple. We just want to try and go and make life as good as it possibly can be. The interesting thing here is you've got the right-wing Pharisees, and you've got the left-wing um, Herodians, who normally wouldn't get along with each other. But see what they're doing here? Both of them are together. They've made an alliance to try and get Jesus, to catch him out. This is a bipartisan effort to get Jesus in trouble. Thankfully, we don't live in a time when people's political opinions are so strong and divisive, right? But that's what's going on here. It's a tense political atmosphere, and that's the background. They start off with flattery, but really what they're trying to do here by flattering Jesus is throw him under the bus. They tell him that he's truthful, that he's impartial, that he's motivated only to please God, only to speak the truth. He's not swayed by the crowds. All of this is true, by the way, but they're not saying these things to be truthful and to actually give him a compliment. They're saying these things to kind of butter him up and, and, and get him to to mess up, to say something that's going to get him in trouble. And here's what Jesus says in verse 15. It says that he saw through their what? Their hypocrisy. 
the words that were coming out of their mouths did not match their actual heart motivation. They had, something, they had an agenda that was completely different than the words that were coming out of their mouths. They were being authentic, though. They, 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 had, they were being true to themselves. They were deceitful in the heart, and they're using words deceitfully. They're very true to themselves, but they're also hypocrites. Look at how Jesus responds to their question about paying taxes. He is not going to make either the right-wing conservatives or the left-wing progressives happy in his answer. He holds up a coin. It's got Caesar's image on it. And he gives this famous line. He says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. What did Jesus mean? Well, if you think about this, he's talking about what I might call spheres or circles of authority. Circles of authority. Think about this. If you have a job, your job is one sphere of authority in your life. You, you probably, I mean, unless you're a sole um, you know, business owner, you probably have a boss who has authority over you, can, can, hi, has hired you, can fire you, can tell you you must come at this time and leave at this time and you, must, you will be paid this amount. Um, there are things you can't do. Don't, don't hurt anybody. Don't hurt yourself. There are all these rules that you follow because you are an employee at your particular job. But you're not just an employee, right? You're also a, a, a member of this community. You're a member of this community, and there are other rules as a member of the community that you have to follow. You know, when you're out and about, you don't jump in the queue in front of people, and you don't hurt other people. So there are some rules that you follow as a member of the community. You're also in a family, and there are rules that you may follow being a part of your family. And then you're in a relationship with God. You're, you're, a, you're a follower of Jesus, and there are other things that are upon you. That's another sphere of authority that you have. Rules like don't worship other gods and don't hurt people. See, some of the rules overlap. Some of them occasionally come into conflict with each other, for the, but for the most part, they overlap. And that's exactly what's going on here. Jesus says, of course, you are a citizen of, of Rome. You are, a, even if you're not a citizen, you live here, you're part of the community, and you should pay your taxes for that reason. That doesn't affect your relationship with God one way or the other. When you're a Christian, when you became a Christian, you were adopted into a new family. But you weren't extracted from the human community, so you can still pay your taxes in that community and follow its rules as long as they don't conflict with God's rules. Just like you don't, didn't start, stop being a part of a family when you were saved. You have a father here on earth. You have a father in heaven. You're a citizen not only, sorry, you're a member of two families, you're also a citizen of two kingdoms, citizen of two countries, if you like. Now, only one of those citizenships will last forever. If you're a citizen of Australia or wherever you're a citizen of, or maybe you're a dual citizen, um, those citizenships are important and significant in this life, but they won't last forever. If you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, that one lasts forever. And they have different and overlapping claims on your life. So your citizenship in heaven, your citizenship in heaven requires then 
that you act in this life, in this community, in your family on earth as an agent, a representative, an ambassador, if you like, of the kingdom of heaven. So that's why we don't say when you become a Christian, you just kind of go off into a holy huddle and you wait until Jesus comes back. You are, you are alive and active in relationships and in community here. You do justice. You do advocate for the oppressed and, and you, you practice the acts of mercy in the human community because you do so not believing that all your hope is here. You do so as an agent or an ambassador of the kingdom of heaven of which you're a citizen. I hope that makes sense. It's, it's a bit tricky sometimes to work out how to be a citizen of two different kingdoms, but that's what Jesus is saying here. And you see, the people that he was talking to were people that were so focused on their citizenship here and now that they didn't like his answer. They believed that their hope was to either get rid of the Romans or to get in good favor and good standing with the Romans. They had no picture of the kingdom of heaven at all, and so they didn't like his answer. But if you don't want to be a hypocrite who justifies all sorts of duplicity and lying and, and, and cruelty in the name of getting what you think you need or getting what the community needs, then you have to remember that you are a citizen of heaven. Remember that you're a citizen of heaven if you don't want to be a hypocrite. All right, let's move on in the text to the next episode, starting in verse 18. Sadducees, this is one of those other, the, you might describe them as the left-wing party. Uh, Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother died, leaving a wife behind but no child, that man should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first married a woman and dying left no offspring. The second also took her, and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. None of the seven left offspring. And last of all, the woman died too. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be, since the seven married her? Jesus spoke to them. Isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Now, here show up the Sadducees in verse 18. And again, they're not here to praise Jesus because he gave a good answer to the Pharisees who they didn't like. But they just want to fire another question at him. They're trying to trip him up as well. They're just as hypocritical as the last group. Their words here don't match what they actually believe. They're, they're giving him this hypothetical scenario that's just, it's just wildly ridiculous. This, is, this cannot or will not happen in real life. Um, it's, it's, it's like one of those, you know, questions you get in math class about, you know, people in, in lifeboats or, I, I don't know. It's just, it's just a, a scenario that would never actually happen in real life. But it's based on a real thing. So in the Old Testament, there's a, a law, that they call it, the fancy name for it is the law of leveret marriage. And the, and the idea is, is that if you are, um, if your couple is married and the, the husband dies, that um, the, his, if he has a brother, 
then the brother should take on his widow as a wife, like a second wife. Or, um, and the reason being is that if she dies with not having any children, then her dead husband will not have an heir and his name will kind of just disappear from the, um, from the inheritance, from the, from the history of Israel. And God said, no, I want, every, you know, I want these people's names and their land to stay in the family forever. Um, and so he required that the, the brother or the brother-in-law marry the widow to try to raise up an offspring for um, the dead husband. Now, here they give the scenario that not only this doesn't just happen once, but it happens six times. And there's no heir. None of them, uh, she's not able to have children with any of the, the men. And so they're, they're asking now, here's the punchline. So when she, um, when they all die and go to heaven, which they didn't actually believe was real, um, who's, who's she going to be married to? And in their mind, they think they're super clever here. They're thinking, man, this is such a ridiculous question. It proves that heaven is not real. It proves there is no resurrection, that when we die, that's it. And it's interesting. You might think it's a bit of a silly question. There have been questions like this um, all throughout, like people that are super skeptical about the idea of the miraculous or um, heaven, and, you know, will kind of come up with these fantastic scenarios like this to sort of disprove that heaven can't possibly be real. One of them, if you go back and read church history in the Middle Ages, the, the idea of, they thought, some people thought the idea of resurrection was ridiculous because the church taught that what, res, what would happen is that when you die, you would be buried, you'd be buried in a particular spot in the ground, and then when Jesus came back, your body, your new body, would rise up physically from that particular location. And along came these clever guys, probably teenage boys or something, and they came along and said, well, excuse me, uh, my uncle was eaten by a lion. So, so, so his body isn't, it's not just in one spot. Where's he going to rise from the ground? Like, obviously, it's not a thing. Obviously, it can't be real. So you've had, these guys aren't the only people that have asked these kinds of questions in church history. It's just a silly question to try to prove just how ridiculous heaven really is. Well, here's how Jesus responds to their question. Um, he doesn't straight up rebuke their bad theology. He says, uh, he starts by saying, clearly, you're, you're wrong. You're wrong. And then number two, he says, here's why you're wrong. Not in the specifics, but in general. You don't know God. And the related aspect to that, you don't know your Bible. That, that's what he says. That's his opening statement here. You do not know the power of God or the scriptures. He explains what he means in detail now in verses 25 to 27. He says, life after death, it's not just a continuation of life on earth. It's a totally new reality. It involves a transformation just like that transformation for, for all of us, if you're a Christian, began when Jesus saved you and your life is transforming. It's changing over time. Your desires, your hopes, your, your, your fears, uh, your joys, all those things are being changed to be in, brought into conformity with Jesus over the course of your life on earth. But when you die, when you are raised to see Jesus face to face, you will be transformed completely, unrecognizable, as a person. 
you will be given a completely new body. That's why he says you'll be like the angels in heaven. Not that you'll be floating around without a body or that you'll, yeah, that you won't have any, there won't be any continuity between your life now and your life then. There is continuity, but the, there is transformation. These, men, these people, the Sadducees, had been living as functional atheists. They did not believe that God had the kind of power to raise someone from death to life. They just did not believe he had that kind of power. And so he challenges them. He says, you don't believe in the power of God. And then he goes to the Bible. Now, interestingly enough, he says he goes to the book of Moses. Why? Well, the Sadducees, they were pretty, they were kind of the religious liberals of, those, of, the, of his day. They only believed in five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Pentateuch. Those are the only books that they thought were inclu- should be included in the Bible. The rest was not authentic. It was not canon. And so he goes to the book of Moses and, sa- and goes to the episode about the bush. The episode, he doesn't do chapter and verse because they didn't have chapter and verses back in those days. He says, Remember, you know the story about the burning bush. How does God, how does he speak about himself? He calls himself the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Meaning that he made a covenant, a promise with those men that they believed that is going to last forever. And it lasts forever because they are going to last forever. Doesn't, you can't find anywhere, really, in the Old Testament that explicitly talks about heaven or the resurrection. However, here he makes an argument from what is implied, that the covenants last forever. If the covenants last forever, then the members, the parties of that covenant are also going to last forever. Same is true for us. Every time we go to the table, every week, we are proclaiming the new covenant in Jesus' blood, a covenant that was given to last forever. And so every time you, you, you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you are saying, this is what I am going to be doing with Jesus forever. That's the argument that he's making here. Twice in verses 24 and 27, Jesus tells these guys that they're wrong. He says they're badly wrong. And he's not just trying to win an argument or score points. He wants them to be right. He really wants them to be right. He wants everybody, including you and your, your skeptical neighbors and, and, and the rich and, and the poor and the powerful, to know the scriptures and to know God who the scriptures reveal. That's, that's what he wants. That's why he came. That's why Mark and the early Christians risked their lives to write these things down, that you might know God, and by knowing him, you would have life in his name best way not to be a hypocrite, not to live a a life of duplicity that covers over selfishness and cruelty, is to know God and to know the scriptures and let God's power and let the revelation of God's character change you from the inside out. True change starts with you getting a brand new heart and then living according to that heart's truth. You can, as a Christian, and only as a Christian, follow your heart because as a Christian, you've been given a new heart. All right. Let's move on to verse 28. One of the scribes approached, and when he heard them debating and saw that Jesus had answered them well, he asked him, which command is the most important of all? 
Jesus answered, the most important is, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no command greater than these. And then the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You've correctly said that he is one, and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he'd answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God, and no one dared question him any longer. So when Jesus was busy rebuking the Sadducees, some of the more right-wing leaning scribes heard, and they're thinking, aha, here's our chance to demonstrate to Jesus and everybody how right and smart we are. So they come up and ask him another question. And this is a question that lots of people asked. There are over 600 commands in the Old Testament, over 600. And some of the rabbis, they would, they would argue, they would debate with each other, which one's the most important? And the answer Jesus gave was not unheard of. He wasn't the first person to point to these two particular commands. And yet he gives that authority for us and for the people who were listening. First and most important command comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and strength. And the second, is, second most important is love your neighbors yourself, which comes also from the book of Deuteronomy. God is the one who is one. He is over and above all others. Love God. Love others. Mark here puts the scribe in a positive light. He doesn't condemn him. The scribe agrees with Jesus' answer, saying love is more important than even sacrifice. Jesus loves him and tells him that he's, quote, not far from the kingdom of God. So what do, what do we make of this exchange? What do we make? Uh, the scribe here doesn't come off too badly. He agrees with Jesus, but he's not quite ready to follow him. Not quite ready to follow him. Jesus tells him he's close. I think, I think that's helpful for us in our relationships with people who aren't yet believers, not yet Christians, aren't willing to say that they believe in Jesus and they've surrendered their, their lives to him. Um, but there is such a thing as being close to the kingdom of heaven, and we can be encouraged by this, I believe, to not give up. Keep praying for those people in your life. Keep trusting the Lord to show himself. Don't be afraid to talk about Jesus. Go straight to Jesus. You don't have to talk around him. Talk about church and church programs and religious sort of stuff that we do and say, but go straight to Jesus. That's what we see here with this scribe. He's close. He's close. And Jesus loved him. It's, um, it's why, though, we need the new heart that Jesus gives. Because that's, that's the only thing that stands between this scribe and being a follower of Jesus, adopted in a new family, forgiven and saved forever. That's what's in between, is that he needs, an, he needs a heart change. To be close doesn't mean, oh, I just need to read one more book, although that might be helpful. To be close means he's close to surrendering, to recognizing just how desperately he needs to be saved. Hypocrisy, it's not what happens when you come to church on a Sunday morning, even though you've just had a fight with your spouse or your kids. 
Hypocrisy is claiming to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, and then actively refusing to be reconciled to the people who have hurt you. Every single one of us, we have moments when we fail, when we don't live up to the standards that, that we even set for ourselves, much less God's standards, when we don't love God with our whole selves, all our minds, all our strength, all our soul, when we don't love our neighbors as ourselves. We all have those moments. But one of the reasons we gather here as a family isn't just to hang out with a bunch of perfect people who never sin. We're here because we need together to confess our desperate need for grace and forgiveness. And we're, we're here to love each other enough to actually be in each other's lives, to prioritize each other, to prioritize the worship of God, to prioritize the love of the people in the family. That's how love for God leads us to love other people. And that's a really good cure for hypocrisy. If you don't want to be a hypocrite, then love God and love people like crazy. All right. Verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked, how can the scribes say the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says by the Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. He also said in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgment. So far, the cures for hypocrisy is to remember who you are, your citizen of heaven, to know God in the Bible, to love God and other people. And you might think, well, who doesn't want to do those things? If you're a Christian, I mean, they all seem pretty straightforward. Um, how do they actually help me when I'm tempted? Well, let's look at the next couple of episodes here, starting in verse 35. And the first one, Jesus here is challenging the scribes. Not directly to them, he's actually talking to the crowds about them. These guys are the ones who are, are not particularly close to the kingdom. That's, that's who he's talking about. He questions that whether or not they actually know the Bible that they claim to know so well. And the crowds loved it because they didn't really like the scribes. They were kind of arrogant. They were like the elites, the religious establishment, if you like. And the scribes, see, they would go around holding out their knowledge of the Bible as almost a, a source of a, a mark of pride. You must kind of bow before us and, 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 and accept our, our theological understanding. You cannot question us. They were very arrogant, typically. They claimed to know that the Messiah was the son of David and that they would recognize him when he came. And ironically, you see this in the Gospel of Mark. Who, is the, who are the ones who recognize Jesus as Messiah? They're the ones they know how much they personally need him. Those who are sick, the poor, the demon-possessed, uneducated men like Peter. They are the ones who recognize Jesus as Messiah, and the scribes, the ones who'd spent their whole lives studying the Bible and theology, they couldn't see him. They were blind. Messiah isn't just a descendant of David. He's not just the son of David. In Psalm 110, Jesus quotes, David calls the Messiah Lord, and that's a title for God. 
Jesus, even though he was humanly speaking a descendant of David, he's not only a human, but he's also God. He's also Lord. Now, in verse 38, he keeps going. Jesus reminds the crowds of how arrogant the scribes are by who like to broadcast their superiority and their status and their learning all over the place. They, they wanted to be honored by people. They wanted the best seat in the house. They wanted to sit in the front row of church, which is why you guys are so humble and you always resist sitting in the front row. Well done. All right. Um, they, they think they're, they're, they'll get the reward that they're seeking in this life. They'll get the reward that they're seeking in this life when all the crowds go, oh, you guys, you just are such Bible experts. Um, but then Jesus says, look what he says at the very end of that section. He says, in the next life, it's going to be quite different. The tables are turned. They're going to receive, they receive greater honor in this life, but harsher judgment in the next life. What's he saying? Here's what I think he's saying for us. When it comes to accepting honor, and that includes things like titles, positions, influence, be very, very slow to accept those things because they're dangerous. They are dangerous for your soul. Now, you will have moments in life, especially as you get older, of you will be put in positions of influence and authority and leadership, and that they're not wrong. It's not sinful to even aspire to those things. But be very careful. All through the scriptures. It's the same, th same thing we see with money. It's not a sin to be wealthy. But it's very dangerous for your soul. And so if you are wealthy, if you are influential, if people look to you for influence, and I say that to myself and, and any of, of you, that if, if people are looking to you, you be careful. You be on your knees in prayer. You have people around you who can call you out when they see pride, when they see arrogance, when they see you not wanting to associate with other people. Man, I, I mean, the headlines, tell, they, they, so many. I, I feel like, man, this year, I've just seen so many high-profile, influential people in the church just fall like dominoes, one after another. But if you then look at their lives, they, these, are, these are people who often had no one who was able to speak into their lives and tell them that they were not living, that they were living a lie. Nobody could say that to them because they had isolated themselves from that accountability. They had moved themselves away and said, no, you can't speak to me because I am the man of God. You cannot question me. You have, it's, it's, it's green room Christianity. It's the idea that to be a leader means to be back invisible from people and being told by, surrounded by people who flatter you. If that's you, even in a small sense, you don't have to be a, a, you know, way, way up at the top, millionaires, you know, but you can still have that same desire to isolate and hide from accountability and from people who really know you. Isolated, lone ranger Christians are sitting ducks for the enemy, for this kind of thing. People who will believe, they'll believe the hype that they are necessary for God and for his kingdom. And they fall one after another. Young, old, men, women, everyone is susceptible to this. Don't take this lightly. Be very slow to accept honor and influence and power because they are dangerous. They're not sinful. They're dangerous, though, for your soul. All right, verse 41. 
Sitting across from the temple treasury, he watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums, and then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put, into more, put more into the treasury than all the others, for they all gave out of their surplus, but she gave out of her poverty, and she gave everything that she had, all she had to live on. So the last cure for hypocrisy in, in this text. It's in the final four verses. Jesus contrasts the wealthy people who are dropping in huge bags of coins that make a lot of noise when they empty them into the offering box. And it, it, it costs them virtually nothing because it was excess to them. It was disposable income. They may have even gotten a tax write-off for it. Who knows? But it didn't cost them anything. And then there's a poor widow who puts in two tiny little coins. You wouldn't have even heard them when they went into the box. They were that small. No one would have noticed her except Jesus. Jesus noticed her. I wish I could tell you that I would have noticed her, that most of us would have noticed her, but I don't think so. I think we are far too allured and shaped by the values of the world. We look at amounts and metrics, things we can measure, things we can see. We look at outward appearance. That's just human nature. God looks at the heart. That's how we're judged. We judge ourselves that way, and we judge other people that way. And the point here that Jesus is making is clear. Giving offerings, uh, donating to the church or to missions or the poor, uh, it's not a contest to see who can give the most. It's not about the tax benefit. Sacrificial giving of our resources is a test of the heart to see where our treasure is. Because the only people who can give like this widow are the people who know that Jesus is worth it. They know that Jesus is more valuable. He's greater treasure than a, a second house or a new kitchen or a holiday in Queensland or a night out. He's worth more than private school. Again, None of these things are, are wrong. I have some of these things. I don't have others of these things. You have some. You don't have others. However, the question is, what is your treasure? What is the thing in your life that if it was taken away from you, you would just be a wreck? You couldn't go on. You would, God would be a liar to you. What is that thing that you're treasuring, that you're holding on to for life itself? Because if it's not Jesus, it will fail you. It will disappoint you. We need to spend our money and our time like people who believe that we're citizens of heaven, that life continues beyond the grave. Such that when the world says, no, you have to have this thing because all your neighbors have this thing, because all your neighbor's kids have this thing, because your, uh, your, your friend's parents have this thing. The best legacy that you can leave your kids is not their education. It's not giving them multitudes of opportunities and, and freedom in life. The best thing that you can leave your kids, if you're a parent, is a rock-solid, joy-filled, humble faith in Jesus. Even if they reject it, that is the best legacy that you can leave your kids. And only people who have been changed and transformed and filled with the Holy Spirit can do that. Anybody can start a trust fund. 
Only citizens of the kingdom of heaven who've been rescued by Jesus can leave that kind of legacy that will last forever. Now, I've said a lot of things. I want to wrap up with a word just from American preacher uh, Kevin DeYoung. Here's what he says about hypocrisy. As he says, it's on the screen. The sin of hypocrisy is not that we are more messed up than we seem. That's true for everybody. We're all more messed up than we seem. The sin of hypocrisy is in using the appearance of goodness to cloak or hide the deeds of evil. The sin is in thinking that who others think you are matters a great deal more than whom God knows you to be. The appearance of goodness can look really good, really religious, really knowledgeable, and really generous, but if it is not God and his spirit bringing out fruit of your forgiven, transformed heart for others, then it's just religious fig leaves. God knows you on your best days. He knows you on your worst days, and he loves you with open arms. He's not afraid of your hypocrisy and your failure. He's not put off by you. He moves towards you with open arms. He's ready to forgive. The question is, are you ready to be forgiven, to acknowledge that you need to be? Are you ready to walk in humble repentance? Ask yourself that question. Christians are not people who are always consistent. We are citizens of heaven whose lives are being brought into conformity with Jesus every single day. We're people who know God and from experience and from scripture and we want to know him more. We're, we're men and women who love God and love other people imperfectly, but that's our desire. We are people who are slow to accept titles and positions of influence from people knowing that it's God's opinion of us that matters the most. We're people who are bold in generosity because of the lavish riches of mercy that you and I have received. That's who we are by grace, not hypocrites, but children on the road to maturity by the grace and design of our Father in heaven. So let's live like we believe that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace and your rich mercy to us. Thank you that... Jesus, you didn't leave us as orphans, but you sent us your Holy Spirit. And it's your Spirit's work in us that is changing us and transforming us, changing what we want so that what we want is what you want. Helping us know that our core identity, who we are, is children in, a, in your family, citizens in your kingdom. Lord, would you propel us to, to love boldly, to be generous boldly, to be slow to accept the flattery and the praise and positions from the world, but to crave only the, the, the your word spoken over our, our lives, to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, Lord. Would, would, we, would those be the things, that be the thing that motivates us, that drives us to our knees in prayer, to worship, and to living lives of, of, of love and grace. Lord, help us now as we come to the table to remember that we are citizens of your kingdom forever by grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to the table as we do each week here.